All right, full transparency up front here on today's episode of the Canadian Psychological Association's podcast. My name's Eric, I'm the communications person at the CPA, and today's subject is completely self-serving on my part. Now, for a long time, I've been involved with youth homelessness in Ottawa, working with a charity called Operation Come Home. And in doing so, for many years, I have been aware of a truly powerful voice for homeless youth, a young woman named Charlotte Smith. Now, Charlotte has been an advocate, an activist, and a champion for this marginalized community, drawing on her own lived experience with homelessness to speak powerfully about the reality of the issue. She's developed quite a following around Ottawa, and her insights inform a lot of policy discussions, especially at the grassroots level. Now, about a month ago, I came across a CBC article that told Charlotte's story and talked about her current work with horses, bringing youth experiencing homelessness out to work with the horses as sort of a therapeutic endeavor. And in that article, they said she was completing her master's in psychology at Carleton University. And I thought, splendid. This is a terrific excuse to interview someone I admire for the podcast and to share this message that I care deeply about myself. And then when I reached out to Charlotte, I found out that the article had made an error. She has, in fact, just completed her master's in sociology and not psychology. And then I thought, let's talk to Charlotte anyway, even if there's no psychology angle. All I ask, dear listener, is that you don't tell my boss. This is Mindful. Today, we're going to speak with Charlotte Smith about her work with horses and homelessness and about the LiveX Alliance, a group that she has formed to advocate for homeless issues, including a bursary to attend Carleton, the Chicken and Boots Bursary, is named for two youth who sadly died here in Ottawa while experiencing homelessness and is geared toward providing an opportunity to youth currently experiencing homelessness to attend university. We're also going to speak with Avery, a young woman who is currently working with Charlotte Ann Horses and who very recently had her own experience with homelessness. And of course, we have a psychologist joining us as well, so you don't need to tell me to my boss. Let's meet our panel. My name's Avery Taylor. I uh, work with Charlotte doing youth outreach with youth in, who are homeless, struggling with mental health in, uh, in the city. And uh, our goal is to just you know, bring them out to the farm and we like bringing them to the horses and getting them in nature and you know, doing what we can to help them with that. My name's Charlotte Smith and I just successfully defended my master's thesis of sociology. And my research topic is youth homelessness. I do a lot of participatory research with young people and that's how I met Avery. That's how I've met quite a lot of young people. And over time we've created a peer group called the LiveX Alliance, which is a group of adults and youth with lived experience of youth homelessness, as well as adult and youth allies working together on different community initiatives. One of which is the Horse Project and just generally trying to see how we can build community and support one another. Uh, I'm Nick Kerman. I'm a psychologist and supervised practice here in Toronto and a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. Um, and my research for the past decade has focused on housing and homelessness interventions um, and particularly permanent supportive housing with housing first as an approach. Um, and then I have some side interests in terms of harm reduction meets um, homelessness as well as uh, pet ownership among people experiencing uh, homelessness. So I'm really excited to hear from uh, Charlotte and Avery around uh, their work. Let's uh, let's talk about that work to, to start with. Uh, Charlotte, you've started this program where youth and horses get together. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, what was the genesis for it and uh, how was it going? So 
when I was uh, homeless, uh, experiencing homelessness as a youth, horses really helped me. When I first got kicked kicked out by my mother, I ended up living on a horse farm for a while and working there, working off my room and board. Um, and then eventually, as my mental health declined, I ended up um, homeless again on the streets. And when I finally got out of that position, I was able to get a job with horses again. And then I had to leave horses in order to pursue education, which was really sad for me. And then once I started meeting young people through research and we started working together on different community projects, I realized that horses is something that I could bring back into the picture. So it's really just about leveraging whatever I have. One skill I have and knowledge I have is horses. Just looking at how can I leverage my position in general? What else do I have? What affordances do I have that I can share with the young people around me? Or how can I get other members of the community involved that do have things that have privileges or resources that they can share with the young people? And Avery, you're part of this program. Uh, tell me how it is for you. Like, what is it about horses that uh, makes this an exciting thing or makes it uh, makes it helpful? Oh. Um, this past May, I got out of a six-year abusive relationship and pressed charges, and uh, I I started to spiral like mental health-wise for the for like pretty pretty badly. And Charlotte reached out to me and offered me work at the horse farm, and it got me out of a really really dark place. And me seeing that, you know, and like seeing it help her before, like it was just how can we use this to help other people? Because this is so to me, it was so key, you know, just the patience you learn and just, you know, getting to bond with that animal. And it helped me in ways that I like, I have a really hard time even articulating it to words. So like, I just, you know, it became, how can we, how can we make this, you know, an actual like project? How can we, you know, bring youth out here? How can we utilize this in the best way possible to help as many people as possible? Well, that's great. And Nick, I'm hoping you can give me a professional overview like what is it you say you work with pets too as a side project and uh, what is it about animals and pets uh, that creates this sort of uh, happy place for lack of a better word well pets can be a really um, tremendous source of unconditional love and affection and in the context of homelessness which many people will describe as trauma where they are in survival mode and they are just doing whatever it takes to get through it. Those connections may not always be uh, connections with people, that is, they may not always be safe ones, um, or they may not be reliable ones. And animals can really create a have, a, have a wonderful place as that source of reliable support. There is really strong evidence that people bond with animals, and it's not bound in a way to one's housing status. And so throughout what can be a trauma, a traumatic experience, people have that connection and it can be a reason to keep going. And so um, it, it makes tremendous sense what uh, Charlotte and Avery are describing of the power of horses and finding that connection for people in ways that they may not, they may not currently have or that may be a, um, a connection to something else, um, uh, another form of meaning in, in one's life. It, it makes me think of uh, a youth that I knew in Ottawa uh, who sadly passed away. And Charlotte, uh, you, I saw in the LiveX Alliance, you were uh, yesterday for Giving Tuesday, collecting donations for the Chicken and Boots Bursary. And Cody, uh, he and his best friend would go around Ottawa and they had a dog with them all the time, right? And it was just 
a fixture. I work, uh, you know, with an organization in Ottawa called Operation Come Home. It's a youth homeless drop-in center. Uh, and they would come into that drop-in center, the two of them with the dog, always with the dog. And uh, I'm just wondering how that fundraiser went and uh, if you're uh, meeting your goal with the chicken and boots bursary. It's an ongoing goal. So we really hope that one day that bursary is enough to include both tuition and housing for a youth each year to attend Carlton. Um, in the last two years, we've raised more than $50,000 and I don't have the total yet for yesterday. They weren't able to give us any previews, but I'm sure it went really well. We had a lot of good feedback online and just in general, a lot of interest in reducing educational barriers for homeless young people and just sort of an increasing awareness that young people experiencing homelessness do want to pursue school and deserve opportunities to pursue, pursue school and kind of moving away from that stereotype of uh, you know, thinking that young people just don't care about school or they don't care about their futures or they're lazy. None of these things are true. And like Nick said, homelessness in itself is often quite traumatic, but also the pathways that lead us into homelessness often involve a lot of trauma. And it's that trauma that holds people back and not just holds people back is just so chaotic and consuming and awful. It's such an obstacle. Yeah, it really is. And I think that the stigma surrounding homelessness is one of the things I really want to talk about today with the three of you, because I think there's still a real belief among people that more often than not, especially among youth homeless, that it's a choice that they've made, right? There were too many rules at home and they just left because they could find somewhere that didn't have rules. And that's so rarely the case. Something pretty awful is happening at home and they're better off elsewhere. They just cannot continue to be there, whether that's because they're not accepted for their sexuality or whether it's because there's a genuinely abusive, terrible uh, situation. And uh, I don't know, Avery, if you're comfortable talking about it, I, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what led you through this and, and ended up in this program. Yeah, so um, how I ended up being homeless was I was in the foster care system and group care system. I was in and out of group homes for years, and it became to a point where I was in several homes where we weren't getting fed. We were being abused, and it was safer to be on the streets. It was safer to be sleeping on the streets. We were fed more. We could get food. We were, you know, we could, we, could, we were safer, and that's where, that's another really big thing that I like to talk about is, you know, like the fact that I know so many youth who were in the system and we fled the system because it was abusive. We were being abused, whether that's sexually, physically being starved, emotionally, like all of the above, it's, it's a real problem. And like, it's, yeah, that's how I ended up on the streets and it's, yeah. And I think the number one predictor for somebody who's going to become homeless as a youth is involvement with the uh, child welfare system, right? Involvement yeah. with group homes and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's definitely something we need to tackle. Uh, Charlotte, if, if you're comfortable telling us your story also, uh, just that journey uh, for you, what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, my parents kicked me out when I was 15 because they couldn't uh, handle my mental health was declining. I was starting to isolate. I was cutting my arm a lot, which they didn't understand. Uh, and they saw as kind of a form of acting out. And when they took the last, the last chance they gave me was taking me into Chio and trying to get Chio to admit me. And the doctors at Chio saying, well, she's basically just, you know, attention seeking. She's not actually suicidal. We won't keep her. So my mom dropping me off outside of a foster home, which I ended up staying at for uh, a few months until 
I got kicked out of there because the foster father was having sex with me. And uh, I've heard so many stories from young people of abuse in the child welfare system. And when I'm talking to the general public about it, they're always really shocked. But if you could, you know, the the, the number of stories and the frequency of, of the rates of abuse that is happening in the system, like Avery says, is just so high and and so ignored. And I think because of like, you know, the stigma that's on these youth in the system, we don't get believed. We're just seen as lying. We're trying to get out of the system. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to get out of the home we're in. We're trying to make excuses. And I think that's, it's so messed up that like the amount of times I called the, the ministry, I called, you know, I called for help and the group home would like fill the fridge with food or, you know, like we were just, we were done. We were so gaslit in the system. It's, it's insane. Like that over and over becomes a narrative that I hear so often, right? The foster system and then people end up homeless. Nick, I'm wondering if uh, that forms part of your research. If you, uh, you have a take on a way that we can improve this, a way that we can, you know, believe youth in the foster system. So Avery and uh, Charlotte's points uh, really capture the vulnerability of being stuck in situations where there are no good uh, choices to be had. You know, it's, it's what is clearly an untenable position and not being heard, not being uh, validated and um, being forced to enter homelessness. I think that at, a, at the public level, there's still this common belief that people choose to be homeless and people choose to not leave homelessness and, and receive housing when the research is very clear that that's not the case. Over 90% of people that are currently experiencing uh, homelessness outside would take housing if it was offered to them. And there in it, there lies the solution is having housing options that work for people and recognizing that people experiencing homelessness are not all the same. They have different needs. There are big differences in terms of age alone. And so what a youth experiencing homelessness might want and need is quite different than somebody that has been homeless for 25 years and is, you know, uh, in their 50s, for example. And so we need to make sure that we have housing options that work for people. And those housing options have to be informed by the people that are experiencing homelessness. And once we have a supply that works for people, then we're more able to support people in transitioning out of homelessness and potentially preventing homelessness from occurring uh, in the first place when there are instances where um, one's foster home is not is not safe anymore. How can we facilitate somebody moving somewhere else? Now, you mentioned the stigma and the sort of sense among people that that homelessness is a choice. And, you know, clearly, as you say, the research demonstrates that's not the case, but this prevailing attitude that that is in fact the case, that it is a choice, that addiction is a choice, all of these things are a choice. Why do people think that? Is it because it makes it easier to ignore the problem when you think that it's somebody's personal choice? And uh, as a follow-up question, is that one of the reasons that it, does that permeate the system that's supposed to be taking care of this? Is that one of the reasons that people don't get believed when they reach out from the foster care system to say this isn't right? Well, I think that, you know, when people admit that addiction is a disease and not a choice, you have to treat it like a disease. 
you have to, you know, it's no longer, oh, this person is choosing to do this to themselves. It's okay, what is causing what is causing this? What is the root to this problem? How can we fix it? And I think that's where it really, really becomes, you know, hard for some people because then it's just, it's a whole other thing, right? It's no longer just looking at it like, oh, they did this to themselves. It's, oh, wow, you know, what caused this to happen to them? What made it get this bad, right? And choices are a part of our experiences. Choices do, you know, shape our pathways into homelessness and our experiences when we're homeless. For me, getting into academia and learning about social theory really helped me stop victim blaming myself. So stop blaming myself for all of these things that happened to me, for all of the choices I made and how these choices might have led me, you know, to experiencing some some really harmful circumstances. So in sociology, one of the things we look at is our structural environment and how that structural environment becomes embodied within us and informs our choices. So it's not fair to say, well, we'll only, the only people deserving of help are the ones that didn't make poor choices or whose choices didn't lead them into a certain circumstance. People for sure do make choices, but those choices aren't happening in a vacuum. They're constantly being informed by the social structures and our social environment around us. So we can't just keep blaming people for choice and we can't keep pretending that choice doesn't exist and only help people if we can imagine that they didn't have any choice in the scenario. One of the bias biases that we're all as humans can be prone to at times is belief in a just world. And that really suggests that good things happen to good people or when people do good things. And so when we look at homelessness, for example, homelessness is a position nobody wants to be in. Well, what would lead somebody to be homeless then is something that they've done. And it's put on the individual because that is an injustice. And the cognitive dissonance that we can feel when we, we look at somebody and we say they're homeless and they didn't do this to themselves, that can be really difficult for people to sit with. And so the connection is drawn that they must have done something to put themselves in that position. And really what we need to move away from is that this is an individual problem at all. This is a structural systemic issue that requires structural systemic solutions. If we keep seeing this as an individual problem, we won't make the gains that uh, we need to make here in Canada. And we will continue to see people who are homeless as having done this to themselves, which isn't the case and is not fair. Same is true for those of us who exit homelessness permanently or temporarily. When people look at uh, Avery as an example of how young people can exit homelessness, it's just not the case because like Nick said, it is a structural issue. So if they're looking at us as examples of, and I hate this word, resilience or whatever, it's not. I personally don't feel that Avery and I are more resilient than our friends who have passed away. We're not more resilient than Chicken, Cody Murray from the Chicken and Boots bursary. It's, you know, these issues are are structural and the people who survive homelessness, it's a dice roll. It's up to luck and chance a lot of the times and it really shouldn't be. For sure. And I'm thinking... I, we, we kicked off this podcast series this uh, this year with a psychologist from Alberta, Zoraida, 
who survived apartheid in South Africa and became an activist against it. And one of the ways that she became an activist against it was to go to school, go into academia, get her PhD and become part of the intelligentsia that then changed the system when you know apartheid ended. And I'm thinking, Charlotte, maybe you're on the same kind of path, right? That people who have experienced homelessness, getting into those spaces, getting into that academic space and you know, that is the way that we're going to change the structure. Is that sort of a thing that you have in your mind when you're, uh, you know, are you going to do a PhD? You just finished your master's? Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm going to pursue a PhD. Um, and I do feel like academia can be part of the solution uh, as far as homelessness is concerned, but also that it can be a big part of the problem. So I'm just really trying to stay conscious and true to my roots and make sure that I'm not, uh, recreating or perpetuating harms in research that are the same harms I'm trying to fix outside of it. Um, you know, even for things, for example, a lot of young people have told me when uh, adult professionals interact with them that there's no trust or bonding and that they've often felt uh, as if they're just a paycheck to that adult. So when I'm marching in to a group of young people for research, I really don't want to perpetuate that feeling, right? I want to extend my hand as a peer and make sure they know that while this interaction is for research, I'm a member of this community and they're welcome to stay in touch with me if they want. For sure. Avery, is, are you uh, planning? I don't, how old are you? And are you planning to I'm 20, go to- I'm 21. 21, I'm, okay. Uh, I'm 21. And are you planning to uh, do post-secondary education yourself? Are you doing some? Yeah, I want to, uh, I want to go into psychology at Carleton U. Yeah, because that's a big, what you were touching on before, I want to get into the system to change the system because I feel like that's the only way that change can be made. And Nick, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Obviously, you're in academia, and this has been an issue not just for the homeless population, but for Indigenous peoples and, you know, racialized minorities where researchers come in from outside, bring their own preconceived notions, get the data they need, and then sort of helicopter out, right? What are some of the ways that we're changing that now? I think that there's a there's a movement towards community-based research that is starting to happen that really understands that research in a lab, um, as it has been traditionally with uh, populations that can be vulnerable, that can be marginalized, can be extortion, or can be taking advantage of people. The ways that we're getting away from this are the innovation, the innovations, and the strategies that Charlotte is leading is having people with lived experience being uh, a part of your research team, being at the table, leading the research, because they're bringing both their, their academic expertise as well as their lived experience in a way that allows for connection. And we really, through this, can start to get away from this transactional experience that um, researchers can sometimes end up in where, like you said, Eric, you're going into somewhere like a shelter, for example, you're paying an honoraria, you're getting your data, and then you're publishing it in an academic journal that is not accessible to the community with whom you are researching and striving to, to uh, support and help. And so I think we, we, we really do need to be more community driven and ask the community both those that are experiencing homelessness, as well as those that are working in the community to help people experiencing homelessness, what do you need? How can research support 
what you're experiencing and what you're striving to do, as opposed to, um, you know, researchers in, a, in, in an ivory tower coming up with ideas and thinking, oh, that's really innovative. Nobody's done that. Maybe that's not the best way to make meaningful change in this community. That yeah. Absolutely. I agree with everything Nick just said about community-based research. And one thing I'm really excited about for my PhD is working with the young people, especially uh, Avery, uh, who's, who is you know, such a part of the farm right now and the working aspect of it, and to design a PhD research study that's participatory with young people uh, where they're involved from the beginning, from the very beginning of the study. All right, Avery, what do you do on the farm? Like, what's um, a regular day like? <laughs> it changes sometimes. You know, some days I'm throwing down hay, restocking the hay room, sweeping the barn, uh, cleaning up after the horses, brushing the horses, cleaning their hooves. There's days where just, you know, the, the barn owner needs certain things done. So it, it changes very, uh, very frequently. Well, that's, yeah, that's neat. And how many others are doing this with you? Uh, is it just you in there with the horses or you have uh, a number of other youth there taking care of them and uh, doing this together? So right now it's, uh, it's just me because I'm also working there to pay the boarding for uh, the horse that I've been working with. Yeah, but our goal is this summer we want to bring youth down and we want to have a paddock set up where, you know, um, mine and Charlotte's horse is there and, and you know, we can just bring youth and like almost equine therapy, right? Like just let them spend time with the horses, let them bond with them and like, you know, teach them if they want to learn how to ride, like, you know, like look into getting them lessons and yeah. yeah. Right now it's very informal. So we're just bringing youth out one at a time as we can. And Avery's been working on getting all the training necessary so that when we have a program, Avery will know fully how to teach the other young people how to handle the horses. Um, but for next summer, we hope to, do a program for at least uh, 12 young people throughout the summer where they would be regularly engaged in wellness and education around the horses. So it, I've heard the phrase equine therapy. Is this equine therapy or is it a sort of a version thereof? I would say it's a version thereof. It's, it's therapeutic. It's therapeutic, but, but everything around the barn is therapeutic for lots of people. So it's therapeutic, but it's not capital T therapy. Although because everything we do, we're trying to engage other members of the community in these solutions too. So that people aren't just donating money, they're actually becoming part of the solution themselves and realizing that they have a lot to offer. So we have uh, people at the barn who have been in the horse world for many years. One of them's offering to coach lessons and is a certified coach. One of them's a yoga instructor. There's another girl who works really closely with us who's a founding member of LiveX, who's been training in equine assisted therapy that would be accompanied by a professional uh, mental health support. So there's all these kind of elements that we want to combine. That sounds like an exciting project going forward. And one of the things that I've noticed, right, and I've been involved in sort of the youth homeless space in Ottawa for 15 plus years. And many, almost every youth that goes on to post-secondary education ends up in some form of social work or some, you know, in that space where they can uh, directly help the people who are in the situation that they found themselves in, uh, you know, just four or five, 10 years prior. And I'm wondering if that's something that you guys see a lot too. And Nick, maybe you see this in uh, psychology, where people with lived experience tend to want to help those who are currently undergoing a similar lived experience. 
Absolutely. And people want to help sooner than they're even in a position to necessarily help, right? Or at least we don't see them as in a position to help because they're still struggling with, uh, you know, homelessness, for example. But I've really found that young people do want to turn around right away and already start offering help. So it's about how can we provide young people with opportunities to get in involved in things like peer support or peer-to-peer youth-led education where they don't need to have their whole life together to be able to start being involved. They can do it right now. We just have to support them meaningfully. For, for so many people, the, the power and the desire to give back, um, especially to organizations and other groups that from whom they've really been helped is something that I know in my research, I've heard loud and clear. And just like Charlotte said, it's people wanna start now often and that and they may not be able to hold down a, a steady job while experiencing homelessness for example but they still want to give back and so one of the things that uh, programs can really do are finding those smaller ways and those those um, types of activities that people can do where it's just a one-off where it's, you know, come on in for the day, we'll, we'll, we'll provide you with an honoraria, we'll pay you for your work, but it's not necessarily something that they have to commit to on an ongoing basis because homelessness is unpredictable. And so, you know, if it's just a, a one-time thing, that might work for some people. Others may be able to do something on a, uh, a longer basis and that's fantastic. But really, um, people do want to give back and they can be really powerful helpers throughout this. Um, and at the same time, it's really important that people manage their own mental health. What can happen is that people can go into this work um, because of their lived experience. And at the same time, their mental health isn't necessarily stable or they're not receiving the supports that they need. And when that happens, unfortunately, they, they suffer as a result, as well as the people that they're then giving back to suffer. And so what's really important is ensuring that those that have lived experience have the supports that they need to uh, manage their mental health so that they can give back and take on those really meaningful roles that they want to. I, uh, I have a really good example of that, actually. So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I was still in an abusive relationship. I was struggling like pretty badly with my own mental health and everything. But I lived in a high-risk neighborhood in Ottawa. And uh, I noticed that all the food banks and everything were just closed at the beginning of COVID. You know, when people, not only the people who need them normally are needing them, now there's people who've lost their jobs. There's families that are struggling. There's people who have never had to use these resources before that have no idea what to do now because, you know, those resources aren't even there. So I, re I decided to reach out to Charlotte and I made a Facebook group and I started running a food bank out of my apartment in yeah. uh, like <laughs> I, I just getting donations. I was getting, you know, like anything we could, we were spending money, like what size diapers do you need? Like blah, blah, blah. Like we were just, you know, making care packages, delivering them to people. And it was great. Like it was going great for a while. And then people started to just, you know, people who'd never used food banks before weren't very, uh, they were picky. They were not satisfied with what they got. They were, you know, and that became very hard on me because I was, you know, burning myself up, just trying to like give back to a community that had always been there for me when I was homeless. Like that food bank there where I lived had always helped me when I was homeless. So to me, it was really important to give back to that community in the time of need when I was in a place to do so, or like better off than most people were in that community to do so. And it got to a point where I had to step away from it because I had to say, you know what, I, this is having too, too much of a negative effect on my own mental health. And 
I, and it sucked. Like it actually really like, you know, it made me really upset because I'm like, I'm, it made me hurt for the people that really needed it and appreciated it, you know, for the people that were kind of like, I wouldn't say ruined it, but the people that burnt me out and like, I kept the group up like people, it was kind of cool to see, you know, the community actually kept it running like on their own after I stepped away, like people kind of were posting who needs what and like reaching out to each other. But yeah, no, that's just a really good example of like, you know, sometimes you want to like help and you help what you can, but then you just get to a point where it's like, you have to put your own mental health first again. And if you don't have the proper supports for that, then that's, is really hard. But and nobody has the proper supports. Professionals who have no lived experience of youth homelessness are still struggling with burnout and mental health and not able to access the support they need. And I, I, I understand, Nick, what you're saying about, you know, having to be careful and wanting to not cause anyone harm in your own burnout. But I also think it's unrealistic to wait until you're a 100% mental health to start helping people or else I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't leave my house because I'm not 100%. I'm still dealing with like, all this trauma from my life and I'm still really screwed up. And there are times where, you know, I'm, I'm on a good roll of helping youth and then I have to turn my phone off for a week. And I don't sit there and think to myself, well, I, gee, I wish I would never started helping. And I think because we're a peer community, I think that that has to be part of the understanding that people are gonna drop off the face of the earth for days here. That's there. one thing I think is really important that I've touched on before in other meetings is that I think there's a very big disconnect that like, you know, I think the people that are, Sometimes like I could have used this reminder as a youth that the people that are helping you also have their own traumas. They have their own mental health issues. They have, they have their, they are people too. They're not just social workers. They're not just like a giving tree. And I think that's, you know, it's how do you like, you know, for me, like as someone who's been on both sides of it, I like helping people, like, how do you find that balance? How do you, you know, communicate to youth that you have to remember, like, these are people too, like we are a resource to help you, but you know, because I think it's really important to prevent burnout because I've known so many amazing social workers who had to stop doing what they do and doing what they love because it was killing them. And so I think that that's something that really, really needs to be touched on more too, is, you know, how, how can you help the people that are helping the people that need help? If that makes any sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I agree. And I, th I think uh, the sense I'm getting from what you guys are saying is that I think I think of this almost in a housing first sort of way, right? The whole notion of housing first is you provide somebody who's experiencing homelessness with a house and from there, they can get all the other supports that they need. Uh, but the number one thing is the stability of having a place to go to an apartment to call their own. And from there, they can get mental health uh, supports, right? Uh, and employment supports and all the rest of it. And I'm thinking that what you're saying with uh, with this desire to help out is you say, yes, first off, yes, all right, we're going to give you the opportunity and the platform in order to help out. But from there, the support has to then come along with it, right? Uh, that it is a great jumping off point to start, you know, feeling like a member of your community and feeling like you're giving back to the people who helped you. People Absolutely. who are struggling are supporting each other all the time. Well, just, you know, in my, um, amongst um, my friends, including myself, with people who use substances, you know, uh, people who don't use substances are often looking at us going, oh, they, my God, these people need help. They need professional services. And that for sure is true. But they also are failing to see all the ways in which the community is supporting each other with things like safe supply, with making sure they're carrying uh, naloxone you know, uh, helping people find substances when they can, helping people out with money or shelter or even, um, you know, first aid, all kinds of things. The power of mutual support is, is just so incredible. And it's, it's probably a resource that we're not 
fully tapping into its potential. Um, we are still a very service-oriented field in the mental health sector, and so uh, we don't always see the potential of some of the ways that people can connect and receive support from each other, like Charlotte has, um, has, has talked about today. I think the other piece, just going back to something Avery mentioned uh, before of, you know, we're all human in, in the helping professions and how, how much of a strength that is. Um, we all carry and bring our own experiences into that and uh, whatever people's lived experiences are, there's vulnerability there. And at the same time, if people didn't have that, well, then they'd be interacting with robots and that's not human services anymore. And so really recognizing that people's lived experience vulnerability can be a tremendous asset and strength. Um, and at the same time, it's just something that everybody that's in this profession uh, and related professions needs to be mindful of. Yes, this is definitely a profession that is not going to be taken over by AI and robots anytime soon. It's uh, always going to be a very human, right? Sure, but sometimes you go to access services and you feel like the robots have already taken over, right? You're dealing with people who are not, I'm not saying they're bad people, but who are, who are acting very professional and very cold and very much as if you're a number on a page and if you don't have the right information or you can't prove that you're desperate enough for this help if you can't if you don't have identification that robot's going to turn you away uh, i'm talking about anything whether you go to access a food bank and they ask you for proof of address or you go to uh, access social assistance and they want you to have an, an address before they'll cut you that check even though you need that check to get an address or you're right. getting you know you're trying to access mental health support from hospital and they're telling you that you're drug seeking and that you don't actually have an issue all of that, I think, definitely goes back to this discussion of the structural nature of homelessness and what causes it. Uh, I am unfortunately going to have to leave it here. So I'm just going to say thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This was great. And all of the yeah, work. Yeah, and Nick, stay in touch, eh? I've heard yeah. about your work too, and we'd love to connect with you. And thanks for the, the hookup. Yeah, thank you for having us. That would be wonderful. Yes. I will reach out later today, in fact. Thanks to Nick Kernan for his expertise, Charlotte Smith for her tireless dedication, and Avery for her openness and insight. Collaboration across a variety of disciplines is essential to dismantling the systems that create and perpetuate homelessness, and it looks like one of those collaborations may have begun right here. To learn more about Charlotte's LiveX Alliance, check the show notes for their social media handles. I'm also going to put a link to the Chicken and Boots bursary in the notes, so check that out while you're there. Mindful is written, hosted, edited, produced, and recorded by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. Join us next week for the final episode of this season when I'll be talking podcasts with Gina Coe, a psychologist in Alberta who just started her own called Against the Tides of Racism.